Well, good evening. It is a great honor and privilege to come before you tonight to share the Word of God with you. It is an honor and privilege because I get to share about the goodness and greatness of God. It is also an honor and privilege because I get to share with your church in which I have heard and seen much good come about. A couple of months ago, my wife and I met with Steve Schultz and he shared with us what a mission field Nassau County is close to becoming or already is. So I praise God that he has raised up your church to proclaim the gospel. And as God continues to open your eyes to the needs around you, may you continue to press on for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. I hope during this summer you have been growing and being edified by the word of God. Personally, I've been following along with you as I've been listening to the recordings on the teachings of Jesus. And from the recordings that I've heard so far, they have been humbling, encouraging, and helping me to draw closer to Christ. So I hope tonight as well that God would be merciful and he would help us um, to draw closer to him as well. Uh, tonight, my message will be on the teaching of Jesus on marriage. And the verses that we'll be working through is Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. So please turn with me to uh, that chapter, and please listen as I read. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who, crea who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening and we praise you, O oh Lord, for your goodness and for your faithfulness. We thank you, O oh Lord, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, O oh Lord. And Lord, right now, we are at your mercy. We pray, O oh Lord, that your Spirit would move mightily in our hearts so that our ears would be able to hear, O Lord. And Lord, I pray that during this night, 
you would continue to bless your church, that you would continue to strengthen your church for your glory, O oh Lord. Lord, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The outline for tonight's message will follow four points. Point one, the context. Point two, the teaching. Point three, the great purpose. And point four, questions and applications. So let's move on to our first point, which is the context. The text today from Matthew 19 opens up with Jesus entering a region described as Judea beyond the Jordan. Officially, this region was called Perea. And while Jesus was healing a large crowd that had followed him, a group of Pharisees approached him with this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? If we know anything about the Pharisees and their deceptive interactions with Jesus, we could likely assume that this was not a sincere question. This was not the Pharisees wanting a better understanding on divorce or to understand on what grounds or what causes would allow divorce to be permissible. But this question was more weightier than what we see. The Pharisees most likely already knew the position that Jesus held on divorce. For in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus made it very clear his position on divorce, and on what grounds divorce was permissible. On a side note, adultery is not the only cause in which divorce is permissible in Scripture. And if you need further clarifications, please speak with your pastors or elders on this issue. But going back to the text, assuming that the Pharisees already knew Jesus' position on divorce, why would they ask their question at all, and particularly while he was healing a large crowd that was following him? I believe one of the reasons is they purposefully asked this question to draw away the large crowd that was following him. During that time, many men had bought into the cultural norm, the false teaching and beliefs that you could divorce your wife for any cause. A rabbi named Hillel, prior to Jesus' ministry, taught that you could divorce your wife for reasons like if she put her hair down in public, or if she spoke to another man, or if she put too much salt in your food, or even if she burnt your bread. This might sound absurd, but for the many men at that time, this was not only accepted, but promoted. So if the Pharisees already knew Jesus' position, and who already knew the cultural norm by asking their question, what were they trying to do? They were trying to show those that were following Jesus how radically different or opposed Jesus' stance was on divorce. And the hope would be that by showing how different and opposed his stance was, it would draw away those that were following him. I don't think this idea is so hard to grasp if you think about our own culture. For there are many people who are 
so-called following Jesus, but their intentions are for health, wealth, and prosperity. But if they're confronted with the true teachings of Christ, I believe many of them would say, that's not the Jesus I want to follow. Another reason that the Pharisees might have asked this question was to cause Jesus to be killed. For Perea, the region of Judea beyond the Jordan was ruled by Herod of Antipas, the same person who had John the Baptist beheaded for calling out his unlawful marriage. A commentator states on this matter, no doubt the Pharisees hoped that by denouncing divorce for any cause at all, Jesus would thereby publicly condemn Herod's adulterous relationship just as John had done and suffer John's fate. So the question that the Pharisees asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, was most likely designed to draw away the large crowd that was following Jesus and also a trap to have Jesus killed. But Jesus, being God, who knows the hearts and minds of all, does not fall into this deceitful trap laid out by the Pharisees. Instead, he uses this time to rebuke and teach the Pharisees and those who are listening by not responding to the initial question on divorce, but by sharing what the word of God says about marriage. Now that we've gained some context on this passage, let's move on to our second point, the teaching. In Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, <clears throat> Jesus answers the Pharisees' initial question on divorce by saying, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not Man separates. So the way Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question is by bringing them all the way back to when marriage was first designed by God in Genesis. This was wisely executed by Jesus because Jesus was putting the Pharisees and the listeners before the word of God. And any argument against the word of God would ultimately be an argument against God. So why does Jesus quote these verses from Genesis? I believe Jesus was trying to teach those who were listening what marriage was supposed to be. Remember from earlier, many Pharisees and many men of this culture were unfaithful and uncommitted to their spouse. But Jesus, by quoting these verses, was sharing that marriage was never designed to be this way. Marriage was designed to be the utmost, the pinnacle way in which one was supposed to be committed and united to one another. And I hope we can see this further by exploring what it means by looking into the text to leave, to hold fast, to be one flesh, and to be joined by God. So the first subpoint to leave. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. 
this leaving of father and mother from verse 5 is not a call to abandon your parents or to care for them. Rather, this is a call that in marriage there is a new allegiance, commitment to your spouse over your parents. J.C. Riles, a bishop from Liverpool, writes, In the beginning of Genesis, where the creation of man and the union of Adam and Eve are described as a proof that no relation should be so highly regarded as that of husband and wife. Once married, there should be no greater allegiance or commitment to another human being than your spouse. But how many of us who are married actually live like this? Are you more committed to your parents, your children, your careers, your hobbies, your friends, more than your spouse? If so, then I would say your priorities are not in order. Your wife or husband should hold your greatest commitment outside of your commitment to God. The next sub-point, hold fast. To hold fast is the next word that we'll be looking to. In the NASB, it is referred to as to be joined, or in the King James Version, to cleave. These words are most likely derived from the Hebrew word debak, which refers to a strong bonding together of, object, of objects, representing a gluing or cementing. One commentator puts it this way, the word cleave denotes a union of the firmest kind. It is in the original taken from gluing and means so firmly to adhere together that nothing can separate them. If you were to take a sheet of paper and cover it with superglue and place it together with another sheet of paper, once dried, there is nothing that you can do to separate those two pieces of paper. I'm sorry for this poor analogy, but that's the best I can do with it. Our union in marriage was designed to be an inseparable union between husband and wife. And the magnitude of this inseparable union between husband and wife becomes further highlighted when we look into the next words, to be one flesh, and the two shall become one flesh. The word in this text is the same word that is used in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 that reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As Christians, we believe that there is one God made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In marriage, God designed the husband and wife to be so united that they are considered to be one flesh. Matthew Henry states it this way, a man's children are pieces of himself, but his wife is himself. As the conjugal union is closer than that between parents and children, so it is in a manner equivalent to that between one member and another in the natural body. This one flesh is further clarified in Ephesians 5, 28 that reads, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Lastly, I would say that we've come to the apex 
of how significant the unity in marriage is designed to be, with Jesus stating, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Every marriage between husband and wife has been joined by the sovereign hands of our God. As no child can be conceived without our Creator giving life, no marriage can come about without God joining husband and wife. Colossians 1, 15 to 16 states, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Marriage is not just about a man and a woman having strong affections for one another or something that has come about due to parental influences or social pressures. But ultimately, there is one creator, our God, who has brought every marriage together. John MacArthur shares a strong statement in this matter where he writes, every marriage and every child is a creation of God. And therefore, divorce and abortion share this tragically evil common denominator. They kill a creation of God. At first, when I read MacArthur's comment, it did cause me to take a step back. I was wondering if this statement was too hard, too harsh. But when I thought about this comment some more, two thoughts came to mind. One, do I believe that all marriage, like children, are created by God, as our text says? Second, have I adopted a low view of marriage that makes comments like MacArthur's, but much more importantly, comments made by Christ tough to take in? See, brothers and sisters, among the many people at that time when Jesus spoke, many of them took on a low view of marriage. But God designed marriage not to be looked upon frivolously, but highly. So as we've been exploring the words to leave, to hold fast, to be one flesh, and to be joined by God, I hope you've learned from his words that outside of God, there should be no greater allegiance or unity between a man and a woman in marriage. The union in marriage should be so extraordinary that it would seem that the husband and wife were glued or firmly fixed together, inseparable from one another, so united that they are no longer two, but one flesh. And knowing this, that this union has ultimately been created by the sovereign hands of our God. I believe this was the prime message that Jesus was trying to teach on marriage to ask the question on divorce. For those who are married or hope to get married, what position do you take? Do you, like the Pharisees, dismiss the significance, the commitment, the unity that occurs in marriage? Or do you humble yourselves before the word of God and pray that Jesus would teach you, help you, and guide you on how to live out or prepare you to live out this truth of being committed and united to your spouse or your future spouse.
Point three, the great purpose. This teaching by Jesus on marriage is not only important for those who are married, it's important for all of us. Because ultimately, this picture of how God wanted marriage to be is a pointer to the great union and commitment between Christ and his bride, the church. Ephesians 5, 29 to 32, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Just as we did from Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, let's further look into the words again, to leave, to hold fast, and to be one flesh, so that we can better understand this mystery of the commitment and unity between Christ and the church. So let's go back to the word to leave. In the context of Christ and the church, to leave in Ephesians 5.31 I believe is used differently here than what we saw in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. For in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, to leave involved a new allegiance and commitment for the husband to his wife. However, from scripture, we know Christ never leaves his allegiance and commitment to his father. So then what is this leaving that is mentioned in Ephesians 5.31? One commentator addresses this leaving in this way. The natural marriage wherein a man leaves father and mother and is joined unto his wife is not the principal thing meant here, but the spiritual marriage represented by it. On it and on which it rests, whereby Christ left the father's bosom to woo to himself the church out of a lost world. See, in this leaving, Christ is not making a new allegiance and commitment to the church over his father. Instead, this leaving is about Christ coming down for heaven for his bride. A verse that highlights both the allegiance of Christ to his father and this leaving of Christ for his bride can be found in John chapter 6, verse 38 to 39. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. See, brothers and sisters, it is Christ who left heaven for his bride, who lived the perfect life that his bride could not live, died on the cross for the sins of his bride, and will one day raise up his bride to be with him again forever. For those who have been redeemed by Christ, we are dead to our old lives and we are alive to a new life in Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. In Christ, we who were once his enemies are also called to leave. Leave the old ways of our lives behind and live a life of obeying him, trusting him, loving him, pressing on for his glory until he calls us home. As the lyrics 
from the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, writes, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. For us, once we are in Christ, there should be no greater allegiance and commitment made to anyone or anything except for Christ. Our next phrase, again, to hold fast. In this union between Christ and the church, it is Christ who holds fast to his bride. And as we, his bride, presses on to live this life for his glory, we do not need to be unassured that we won't finish this race. Because, brothers and sisters, it is he that holds us fast. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at that day of Jesus Christ. Our hope, our peace, it rests on Christ, for it is he that will preserve us till the end. As we toil, as we fall, as we rise, as we press on, it is Christ that will hold us fast. From the song, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Brothers and sisters, as Christ holds fast to us, we also must hold fast in our faithfulness to him. We hold fast <clears throat> We hold fast by trusting in the finished work of the cross and the promises of Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. As Christ holds fast to us, and as we hold fast to him, we, we learn to abide in him so that we would bear much fruit for his honor and glory, not looking to ourselves our strength, our wisdom, but looking to Christ alone. For apart from him, we can do nothing. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Lastly, 
we can look upon, upon this profound mystery of this great union, this great commitment and union between Christ and the church by looking into what it means that Christ is one flesh with his bride. However, before we look into the phrase, I think it'll help us understand why this is such a profound mystery by remembering who we were before Christ. Before Christ, we were separated from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Before Christ, we were hostile to God. Romans chapter 8 verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Before Christ, we were considered dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But even though we were enemies of God, hostile to God, dead in our trespasses and sin, Christ in his great mercy and love died for us. And it is by his blood that we are reconciled to him. Romans chapter 5 verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Now that we've seen who we were before Christ, I think we can appreciate this mystery more. Because if Christ did not die and rise again, there is no union. There is no one body between us and Christ. It is all because of what Christ has done that we can be considered his body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Colossians 1, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. How profound is this mystery of our unity with Christ. And if this unity has come about because Christ shedding his blood for our sins and victoriously rising again over our sin and death, then what can separate us from this union between Christ Romans 8:34 Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As Jesus taught, marriage was designed by God for there to be no greater commitment and unity between a man and a woman. And this design and this design was to be a pointer to the commitment and unity between Christ and the church. And here's one more amazing truth. This unity between Christ and the church and this unity between the body is a pointer to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus praying in John chapter 17 verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they all may be in us 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How important is it? How significant is it that we strive to be committed and united in our marriages and united and committed to Christ? It is for our good, for the advancement of his kingdom, and it is for his glory. Let us conclude this evening with two questions and two application points. Question one, are you united and committed to your spouse and or Christ? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you are not united and committed to your spouse and or Christ, what is causing you to be unfaithful? Is it the love of money? Or is it any other idols that you've created and are devoting yourselves to? Or is your lack of faithfulness due to what you're allowing your eyes to see? Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 28 you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in, her, in his heart. Are you secretly watching pornography? Or are you allowing your eyes to wander where it should not wander? One more thought among the many. Are you involved in relationships that are drawing you away from being faithful. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Brothers and sisters, be vigilant against sin. Be vigilant against anything that is drawing you away from your commitment and unity to your spouse or to Christ. Question two, have you given into today's culture and its falsehood? One of the most surprising verses from what we read in Matthew chapter 19, verses one through 11, was the statement that the disciples made in verse 10, which reads, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. This was the disciples speaking. It wasn't the Pharisees. At first when I read this, it, it did make me take a step back. But that was because I didn't understand the culture and the norms of that time. But as discussed earlier, the ease of divorce and the low view of marriage was not only accepted by the culture, but was taught by the Pharisees who were supposed to have great knowledge of the scriptures. I would say that we live in a very similar or worse time than theirs. In our country, close to half of all marriages will end in divorce. We are constantly bombarded by mainstream 
music, and media of living for yourself and living for whatever pleases you. Parental advice or advice from others might suggest you can cohabitate before marrying. In our country, a man can marry a man, another man, and a woman can marry another woman. And any opposition to that belief would make you a bigot. But what does the word of God say? Marriage was designed for one man to be united and committed to one woman. Brothers and sisters, are there any areas in your life in which you have bought into today's falsehood? If so, repent. We are not called to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And we do this by praying and meditating on his words, by learning to walk with his spirit as he directs us onto what is true and onto what is good. Application one, seek help and counsel if you're struggling in your marriage and or faithfulness to Christ and the church. June 2020 is when my wife and I decided to get biblical marriage counseling from Mike Maltry from Woodside Community Church. To say the least, my wife and I were at one of the lowest points in our marriage. However, by the grace of God, God used Pastor Mike to listen to us, to help to us to listen to one another, to put us before the word of God, to pray for us and give us work to do for weeks. Still to this day, he follows up with us randomly to see how we're doing. Our marriage is far from being perfect. And even as I was preparing this message, I realized that there is much more work that I need to do as a husband. But still, because of God working through the counsel that we receive, there has been much growth and hope in our marriage because of Christ. I do not know where you are in your marriage, but if you need help, please seek it. I hope from today's message, it, it will encourage you to see the importance of marriage and that it's worth submitting yourself to the word of God. If you're struggling in your lack of faithfulness to Christ, I would say there is nothing more urgent and requires more attention. Do not be indifferent. Cry out to the Lord and pray for help today. Pray right now. Also, find a brother or sister that is mature in the faith to share with and to pray with. Speak with your elders who loves you and keeps watch over your soul. Our last application, draw near to Christ. I do not know if this message has been weighty for you. I do not know how hard your marriage might be. Or if you're thinking it's impossible that there is any hope for my marriage. I do not know how long you've been struggling in your sins or if you feel distant from Christ and the church.
But I do know a Savior who is Christ, who is God, who died for the sins of this world, and anyone who believes in him will be saved and will be forever united with him. Christ is the faithful groom who is committed to the ultimate good of his bride, the church. In light of this truth, draw near to Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I pray that you would use tonight for your good and for your glory. I pray that you would help those who are struggling at this time. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would draw them near to you. There is no greater place to be than to be with you. Lord, may you have mercy upon any unbelievers that are here. May they see the greatness and goodness of Christ, and may they believe, O oh Lord. May you bless this church, bless this congregation, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.